0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale
1: University.
0: You are listening to a download from Yale University Press. For more information, go to the website www.yalebooks.com. Hello and welcome to episode 17 of the Yale Press podcast, the monthly podcast from Yale University Press. My name is Chris Gondek, and you'd think I'd remember that July sunshine plus black leather seats in a car equal tremendous heat. Somehow I forget this. In this episode, I speak with Marwan Mouasher about the contribution of moderate Arab states to the Middle East peace process.
2: Western perceptions of the Arab world, unfortunately, tend to focus on uh, its extremists uh, in the region. Uh, but uh, my book attempts to show that Arab moderates do exist, And they have, at least with regards to the peace process, put forward every single major initiative to settle the Arab-Israeli peace conflict in this decade. Uh, the Arab Peace Initiative in 2002 and the uh, Re- uh, Middle East Roadmap in 2003.
0: And Rob Riemann about the importance of spiritual development to the health of the body politic.
2: There was a torch. Uh, on the cover of my
1: book and it's the torch of the Statue of Liberty in uh, in New York and um, in my introduction to my book I you know I, I, I suggest or I present an argument that the Statue of Liberty in New York which is so much a symbol of uh, America is the spiritual daughter of the Dutch philosopher Spinoza and Spinoza was a man who discovered that you cannot have Uh, no, that we should have a democracy, but you you cannot have a democracy without political freedom, but that you also cannot have political freedom without spiritual freedom.
0: Stay tuned. There are many different narratives that have run through the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but one story that has not gotten a lot of attention in the Western press was about the efforts of modern Arab states to develop initiatives to bring peace to the region. In his new memoir, The Arab Center, The Promise of Moderation, Marwan Washer looks back at this period in which he was a significant contributor and reviews the successes, failures, and personalities of this effort. Marwan Washer served as Jordan's first ambassador to Israel and was also ambassador to the United States, spokesperson at Peace Talks in Madrid and Washington, minister of foreign affairs, and deputy prime minister in charge of reform. Marwan Washer, thanks for taking time to talk to Yale University Press today. I want to start this discussion about your book, The Arab Center, The Promise of Moderation, talking about one of the primary figures in the book, the late King Hussein of Jordan. How important was the king to the peace process?
2: The king was very important to the peace process because he really used his stature uh, to advance uh, a model of cooperation and its coexistence among all countries of the region. He worked tirelessly on stage and backstage Throughout to translate this vision of peace to reality, and he held uh, key uh, the key to many deadlocked moments, uh, and uh, was able to help, in particular, support the Palestinians in their own negotiations with Israel. Uh, he used his, uh, as I said, the stature being on the throne for more than 40 years, to try to change the goalposts and try to change the reality in the Middle East and push for uh, a model of peace. There is no question that. The peace process has suffered uh, after his death. We have not had someone of his stature uh, to carry the torch.
0: How well do Western publics understand the diplomatic efforts of Arab countries in the peace process, particularly during this part that you wrote about in your book?
2: Western perceptions of the Arab world, unfortunately, tend to focus on uh, its extremists uh, in the region. Uh, but uh, my book attempts to show that Arab moderates do exist, and they have, at least with regards to the peace process, put forward every single major initiative to settle the Arab-Israeli peace conflict in this decade, Uh, the Arab Peace Initiative in 2002 and the uh, uh, Middle East Roadmap in 2003. In the Arab uh, Peace Initiative, uh, 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 the Arab moderates were able to, after a, a strong debate, a heated debate with the radicals in the Arab camp, were able to prevail and uh, propose a model that not only addressed Arab needs but Israeli needs as well. And in return for uh, a two-state solution and Israel returning the occupied Arab land to the Palestinians, uh, Syrians, and Lebanese, the Arabs would uh, propose a collective peace treaty with Israel and collective security guarantees for all states of the region, including Israel, Thereby, uh, uh, thereby affecting a peace treaty not just between Israel and the Palestinians or the Syrians or the Lebanese, but a peace treaty between Israel and the whole, uh, uh, the whole of the Arab world and uh, 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 come to an end of conflict and no more claims once a two-state solution is affected.
0: One of the things that once the roadmap was out that might have held up some of the development is that there was a sense that, especially early on in the Bush administration, they were much less engaged in the peace process than the Clinton administration. Is that an accurate perception?
2: It is. Uh, The Bush administration, uh, almost from the beginning, took uh, a conscious decision to disengage itself from the peace process first because it felt that the Clinton administration tried and failed And then after 9-11 and its focus on Iraq, the Bush administration only gave the peace process lip service. And even though the Arab moderate voices pushed hard for uh, uh, the roadmap, which is really a series of concrete steps to translate the vision of two states into actual steps, ending with uh, two states uh, in three years, the Bush administration never really followed through uh, on this with the measures and engagement that is needed in order to make it a reality. Its uh, belated uh, involvement in the peace process now in its eighth year, uh, I'm afraid, might not uh, be enough to uh, solve the conflict. And uh, one thing I call in my book is for the new uh, administration, whether it is Mr. McCain or Mr. Obama, to take on the Arab-Israeli conflict in its first term and to try to bring about a solution.
0: I think it's not too hard to come to the conclusion that the United States is not really held in terribly high regard by large segments of the Arab public. I guess, first of all, would you agree with that assessment?
2: I do, and unfortunately, it is getting worse. Uh, uh, I think, one, because of the United States' uh, traditional view on the Arab-Israeli conflict and the perception that it is has taken a strongly uh, pro Israeli bias uh, in this conflict, but two, because of the engagement, because of the war on Iraq and because of the perception today that the United States has double standards in how it uh, it deals with the region on uh, the two very important questions of peace and reform. Because of that, I think that the image of the United States in our region is at an, at an all-time low.
0: I've always been curious, though. I mean, because the one would think that members of the State Department, especially ones who've been on the ground, have a sense of how things would play. Then, when I don't want to use this <laughs> this kind of traditional term, the Arab Street. So, I've always been curious from someone that's that's seen it from a from a capital in the Middle East. Is it just that the, the American government doesn't really understand how the mess, how what they do is going to be perceived by the public? Do they just not care? Is it a degree of arrogance, or do they have good things to say? They just don't do a particularly good job communicating it.
2: Well, I think it is more than uh, doing a good job of communication, because uh, in the end, you do not sell what is not there. On you know, you do not package what what is not on the shelf. Uh, so. I think uh, uh, there must be a much stronger engagement by the United States uh, in the region on all of the issues. Uh, on peace, no one is uh, really looking anymore on the Arab side uh, at the relationship between Israel and the United States and the relationship with the Arab world as a zero-sum game. Uh, the fact today is that a two-state solution is not just in the interest of the Arab world, it is also in the interest of Israel which today faces a huge demographic problem and faces a situation where the number of Arabs living either inside Israel or under occupation will outnumber the number of Jews in a few years. So unless we all work for a two-state solution, we are going to have to deal with a radicalized population frustrated because of the occupation and uh, very difficult to deal with. Uh, on the issue of reform also, I think that the Bush administration has uh, not served this uh, issue of reform well, because while they have called for it at first, uh, they stopped doing that once the results were not to its liking, and therefore is being perceived by people in the region as having double standards.
0: You know, this conflict has gone on for so long, and it seems to, on paper that it makes sense that some kind of resolution should come forward, and yet it never does. To what degree does a lack of resolution in this Israeli-Palestinian issue really suit the purposes of some of the main players in the region? Could you talk a little bit about the pressures that are keeping these two these two sides apart?
2: Well, no one really is served in the region, uh, if they ever were, by the continuation of the Arab-Israeli conflict today we are facing uh, an increasingly radicalized region because of the continuation of the conflict because of the emergence of such radical groups as al-qaeda uh, no one is really uh, going to be served by the continuation of the conflict and what I call for is uh, for the international community to help bring about a settlement which has already in my view be being negotiated between uh, the two parties the Israelis and the Palestinians today we Uh, both know what the framework for a solution looks like thanks to the efforts of parties themselves. What we are in need of is the political will to bring about such a solution, which I think the United States can certainly help in. But Arab moderates can also help themselves by not being a one-issue center, by not just being focused on the peace process. And having not solved it, uh, not for the lack of trying, they are accused by the Arab public of you know, uh, not showing anything for their efforts. Arab moderates needs to extend their moderation to all other areas of concern to Arab society, such as political reform, good governance, economic well-being, cultural diversity. And only when they do that can they hope to remain credible in Arab eyes. And my book talks about the reform efforts in the Arab world, reform efforts in Jordan in particular also, and what needs to be done if the Arab center is, to be viewed not as an apologist for the West, but as a true uh, defender of Arab rights.
0: Jordan has always had a reputation of the West of being a partner to work with in the peace process and a fairly moderate voice during most of these discussions. Uh, how has that been able to work out, particularly with, I, I know reading from the Western media, one of the big issues that, that we read, and you kind of alluded to one of the answers, is that if you allow a full democracy and all voices in an Arab region to participate in the political process that there's concern that some of the more radical elements of the, pol- uh, the polit- of the populace will end up sweeping into power and you know it's, it's easy to th- it's easy to stereotype it and say that you know f- you get a fundamentalist Islam- Islamic party that will roll in but I know that that has often been a concern in Western capitals how do you envision or can you give us an example in which those voices of Islam are able to work within a moderate political framework.
2: Well, first of all, uh, uh, what uh, what I think should happen is a gradual uh, process of opening up. Certainly, uh, an immediate process will uh, or might be used by the radical forces to come to government uh, or power once and then deny this to others. Uh, I don't think that what is uh, needed is uh, an immediate process, but it has to be a serious process if gradual. Uh, the traditional forces uh, argument today is that if you open up the system, indeed, the radical forces come in. But that argument ignores the fact that the radical forces have not been weakened by a continuation of closed systems. Uh, who have uh, uh, even heard of such groups as Al-Qaeda or, or Hamas or, or uh, Hezbollah uh, uh, 25 years ago? The simple fact was they did not exist then. Today they don't only exist, but they command, uh, you know, large support among Arab masses because of frustration stemming both from the continuation of the conflict and from the lack uh, of a reform process. And so the counter-argument, the reformist argument, is that if you don't open up the system, the radical forces come in. To do that, uh, one must uh, work uh, towards a formula where all moderate forces, whether they are secular or Islamist, must commit themselves to two principles the principle of peaceful means meaning that uh, no one can carry arms and and advocate uh, political views while carrying arms at the same place and a commitment to political and cultural diversity at all times meaning that no one can come to uh, power and then deny uh, that right for others uh, this is uh, the process that might take 40 or 50 years but it's a process that must be started so that we do not have only two alternatives in the region, a ruling elite with no system of checks and balances, and a radical ideology which might threaten the political and cultural diversity of society.
0: Kind, of le- kind of tied into that question, going back to the question of Israel, do you believe that the United States will eventually have to recognize Hamas in order for the peace process to move forward?
2: I believe that uh, we can no longer talk about uh, today a separate peace between Israel and uh, the Palestinians or any other party for that matter. Because in such a peace, uh, radical groups such as Hamas do play a major role and might not give Israel the security that it feels it needs for such a solution. The power of the Arab Peace Initiative is that it promised Israel a peace not between itself and the Palestinians only, but between Israel and the whole Arab world, in which groups such as Hamas will have a very, very minor role. This is the power of the initiative, and this is why, in my view, it remains a most viable framework for a solution to the conflict that will involve the whole region and not just parts of it.
0: So what's the next step?
2: Well, on peace, I think the next step is for the incoming administration to take on the Arab-Israeli conflict in its first term, to use the number of frameworks that have already been negotiated among the parties whether it is the Clinton parameters, the Taba talks that followed them, the Arab Peace Initiative, the Geneva documents. We today have in our hands a number of documents that have already been negotiated among the parties, and it is not difficult for the international community led by the United States to forge out of these a framework for an agreement uh, to be implemented quickly so that we do not give uh, opponents of peace enough time to derail the process such as they have done repeatedly and effectively on both sides in the past and on reform I think that Arab moderates have the principal responsibility of starting a serious and gradual reform process but a process that is homegrown and one that can be supported by the international community nothing can support Arab moderates more than uh, 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 you know an end to the Arab Israeli conflict so that they have something to show for their efforts, but then they have to pick up the responsibility in pushing for a reform process in in our own country.
0: The Arab Center, the promise of moderation, is on sale now at booksellers everywhere. To hear an extended interview with Marwan Muasher, go to www.yalebooks.com slash podcasts. The two world wars of the 20th century created a grave crisis at how societies in the West viewed their cultural heritage. And in his new book, Nobility of Spirit, A Forgotten Ideal, Rob Riemann examines how the ideal of a noble spirit is critical to the functioning of a free society. Rob Riemann, an essayist and cultural philosopher, is founder of the Nexus Institute, an international center devoted to intellectual reflection and to inspiring Western culture and philosophical debate. Rob Riemann, thanks for taking time to talk to the Yale Press podcast today.
1: Oh, good morning, thank you.
0: The name of your book is Nobility of Spirit, A Forgotten Ideal. Well, let's start with the first part. What is it that separates a noble spirit from one that's not?
1: Well, if you see uh, my book, which fortunately is only, a, you know, it's a, it's a slim book. There is a torch uh, on the cover of my book and it's the torch of the Statue of Liberty in uh, in New York. And um, in my introduction to my book, I, you know, I, I, I suggest or I present an argument that the Statue of Liberty in New York, which is so much a symbol of uh, America, is the spiritual daughter of the Dutch philosopher Spinoza. And Spinoza was a man who discovered that you cannot have the uh, democ- no, that we should have a democracy, that you, get to- that you cannot have a democracy without political freedom, but that you also cannot have political freedom without spiritual freedom. And what does he mean with spiritual freedom? He realizes that uh, uh, people can only be free if they are free from stupidity, if they are free from superstitions, if they are free from uh, fear, if they are free from, you know, greed and that kind of uh, uh, desires. So he moves on. You are only free if you are capable to live in truth. If you uh, are capable, you know, to acquire a certain wisdom without being able to live in truth and without, you know, uh, 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 having some wisdom, you cannot be a free person. Now, all these words, you can wrap it up in in what he said, it's all about nobility of spirit. Nobility of spirit is a synonym uh, for human dignity and uh, uh, to live a life in dignity. And um, uh, these are the things you, uh, 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 you have to acquire. Now, he also realizes that this is not simple. symbol. A very famous phrase of him is, all things, all things excellent are as difficult as they are rare. But nevertheless, you know, th- that's the thing to do. And, if, and again, you know, to, to, to go backward, without nobility of spirit, no spiritual freedom, without spiritual freedom, no uh, uh, political freedom, without political freedom no democracy and without no and without democracy well as a European we still know physically what happened you know 67 years ago on our continent when Americans had to come and, and to liberate us so it is it is about something well it, it is about the essential thing for our uh, society and Spinoza and many others who figure in my book like Thomas Mann who's a big figure in my book who came to America in nineteen thirty eight and um, uh uh in exile and, and was welcomed uh here by by the Americans, um, they they realized how fragile always the things are which are most precious to us. Freedom is precious and fragile. Um, democracy is precious and fragile, you know, like other things in life, love, and so on and so forth.
0: Would it be fair to say that this nobility of spirit is, if you look at it from the political realm, an issue of the flowering where the individual seed is individual spiritual development?
1: Oh yes, absolutely, it's an, 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 an it, it a nobility of spirit relates to uh, a, a quintessential idea which basically comes from uh, Socrates, you know, in all ways uh, the spiritual father of, of so many the values and virtues which I think are essential for Western uh, uh, civilization. But also, it's Thomas Mann, um, um, the novelist of, you know, The Magic Mountain and Dr. Faustus, um, but he once said that nobility of spirit is the sole corrector to human history. We are, you know, that kind of species which are, we are are violent, uh, we can be deeply egoistic, um, we can do the most outrageous and most horrible things. Human history is full of it. And the daily newspaper and the daily news shows are full of it. Um, but in, in after the war, after the war, in 1947, when he gave a big speech uh, in Washington at the Library of Congress, he said, look, if we want to move to a better world, yes. We do need a democracy. Yes, we do need uh, free press. Yes, we do need uh, a United Nations. Yes, we do need all these things. But the essential thing is an individual responsibility uh, and an and individual who, you know, who, who live their life in truth, who wants to real- realize this nobility of spirit. Because if there is not this nobility of spirit, um, um, more conferences, more intellectual debate, more politics, more democracy will not help us. And I think that he was very, very prophetic uh, 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 in it because, no, well, it's quite simple. All those institutions, all these things are man-made, and it's the people who are who are dealing with it turn into quite uh, quote-unquote uh, bureaucrats. Who only do the things you know they are assigned to and whatever. If people do not take, I mean, that's the thing. If people do not take their responsibility, if people don't feel an urge uh, 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 to, to to take a responsibility and to make a difference, institutions doesn't say anything. A democracy is and has to be you know something that is spirited and that it is alive and it is endlessly more than we will have the elections and we will have free vote. That's, that's not what democracy is. So this, this, this whole notion of, yes, we all have a responsibility. Uh, and as an individual, we have to take this responsibility. And as an individual, uh, we know we can make a difference by uh, uh, keeping our intellectual and moral integrity. Um, that's such a, that, that is such an, an important uh, uh, issue. And that is also a thing, which is also part of my book uh uh what education should be for and if so if if we if we start uh, using education as only a, a kind of utility uh, uh, uh which is useful for us you know to make more money or to be you know a great banker or something uh, like that we we misunderstood what socrates probably already knew, and that is that education essentially should be that kind of training um uh, to make us capable you know to be an, uh, to be an embodiment of the highest values and to to give us a kind of training in, in the most important virtues we need to listen truth to make a distinction between good and evil to to understand what is really important and what is less important so all these things are are interrelated to each uh, 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 other and 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 one of the things I hope to make clear is that. What others might see from the outside as a kind of philosophical book or or whatever has profound and deep uh, political consequences. You cannot connect these things. It is impossible.
0: This is true, but one of the questions that would come up for me, and use the word essential in in two separate uh, answers, is that for a lot of people, what they might consider essential or the core of their being can often turn into an absolutism, that how they see the world is in fact how they believe the world should be. But your book isn't saying that, and so I wonder if you could talk about this relationship between the the individual essence, which I'm getting as kind of the nobility of spirit, and where it might begin to shift over into an absolutism, which, as you point out your book, can be very damaging for the body politic.
1: Yes. Well, that's a very good question. Thank you for uh, uh, this, Chris. Because there's an, an um, um, and part of look nobility of spirit. Um, it, it, it is an idea, and it's, it is uh, quintessentially uh, an idea which is part of uh, um, what I call a European humanist uh, uh, tradition. But there is not much difference. uh... or you know, they are like twin brothers. The, the, the idea of the American dream, as it was realized and dreamt by uh, the founding fathers of America and this idea of European humanism. They, they really, you know, fit uh, uh, fit together. Now, what, what, what both uh, 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 the philosophers and, and, and the thinkers, which are part of the tradition of European humanism and, and, and speak about nobility of spirit and the American founding fathers understood all too well and is, that, is that, that this essential part of our uh, 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 human being that we should realize that we can never, ever possess the absolute, and everybody who makes a claim that they possess uh, what is absolute uh, is both a liar and literally a fundamentalist, and it an and and an, they are the most dangerous uh, uh, people they are. And again, the European experience we have had it with totalitarianism, with fascism, with uh, Stalinism. And, and, and political ideolo- ideologies uh, related to it. So part of this, 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 this spirit of, 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 of the nobility of spirit is like Socrates. You constantly have to question yourself. You also have to realize that the questions you ask yourself are much more important than the answers, and that the answers are always, you know, only there temporarily, you know, to move on. That it is part of being wise that you cannot possess any absolute and that you know part of this mindset is the quality to doubt um, and, and and to have a certain skepticism without you know falling in despair uh, and all these uh, things it, 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 is, it is nobility of spirit relates to you know being able to act in good faith and and, and when you think that you that you can possess a certain truth then we have you know then we move to ugly uh, uh, faith and, and with it you know immediately with this cult of obedience violence uh, 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 death you know that's, that's that's why fundamentalism always is, is related to uh to that I, I really made in the interest and, and one of the stu- one of the the, the essays um uh, in my book i, I, I are around a, a thing i was stunned by and that was the response of so many people from the intellectual world after 911 and what i could not understand is that Uh, uh, people who know all chamber music of Schubert by heart and know all the poets of uh, poems of of Robert Frost and the songs of of Shakespeare by heart that at the same time they could not make a distinction between good and evil and uh, for political reasons they they, apparently they have moved into a kind of paradigm in which their political political view is the final answer to uh, 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 everything And when politics takes over, when when, when a mind becomes obsessed by any form of politicization, whether it's coming from the right or the left, uh, then you already indeed move to, I have the final answer, I know everything because, you know, my little paradigm is, you know, can be the only answer to, but it is a reduction of truth. It is even a reduction of uh, uh, the facts, it is a reduction of, 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 of of who we are because you know the great things in, in life are always beyond politics. So you no know, this a nobility of spirit is 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 probably the only, you know, intellectual mindset against absolutism. That's one of the things why it's rare but also so important.
0: Nobility of spirit, a forgotten ideal, is on sale now at booksellers everywhere. To hear an extended interview with Rob Reiman, go to www.yalebooks.com slash podcasts. You know, the all-star break in Major League Baseball is quickly approaching. And just like you, I'm asking myself, what will I do those days when there isn't a full slate of games to listen to or to watch? Fortunately, I have the answer. The Yale Press Book Sale. Just hop on over to www.yalebooks.com, click on the half-off sale banner on the left side of the webpage, and The Treasures of New Haven can be yours for a song. For more information about the show or to subscribe to the feed, go to any podcast aggregator such as iTunes, Zune, Odeo, or any number of sites, or go to the Yale Press website, www.yalebooks.com podcast, and look for the subscription button on the podcast page. You'll also find the show notes on the Yale Press log. My name is Chris Gondak. and if you have comments or questions about the show, feel free to drop me a line at yup.email.news at yale.edu. And that's it for this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. Dan Lee is the executive producer, and my name is Chris Gondack. I'm the producer and host of the show. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next month. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. The Yale Press Podcast is a production of Heron & Crane. For more information about the show, go to www dot yalebooks.com or ww.haronandcrane dot com copyright two thousand eight Yale University Press All Rights Reserved.